2: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. It's shrinking the next Ted Lasso edition. It's Wednesday. February 8th, 2023. On today's show, Shrinking is the latest from Apple TV. It stars Jason Segel as a therapist who, grieving the loss of his wife in a car accident, starts radically breaking down boundaries with his patients. It has a kind of wonderful ensemble cast, most notably, I suppose, as Harrison Ford plays an older therapist. And then... Our Oscar roundup continues with Triangle of Sadness, the social satire from Swedish writer-director Ruben Ostlund, that has already run the Palm Door. At can will it take home the best pick? We discuss, and finally, does anybody know how to behave anymore? It sort of seems like from a new feature in New York Magazine on etiquette that nobody does. They present a hundred and forty or so list of uh, behavioral tips. We will discuss. Julia Turner is joining me today from LA. Hey Julia. Hello, hello. Julia of course is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times and uh, from New York we have Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey Dana. Hey, hey. We have fun topics. Let's uh let's make a show. All right. The actor Jason Siegel is a he's a writer as well as an actor and performer and this one he does both. He's the lead in Shrinking. He's Jimmy, a therapist who after his wife dies in a car accident begins to try out some unorthodox, putting it mildly, new techniques with his patients, including two of the really big, arguably, therapeutic no-no's. He's frank with them, he just tells them what he's actually thinking about what they're saying. Uh, And he befriends them. Is Jimmy working through his grief? Is he himself having a kind of nervous breakdown? We'll find out. The show stars Lakita Maxwell as his daughter and Harrison Ford and Jessica Williams as therapists he shares an office with. Why don't we listen to a clip in it? Uh, Jimmy complains to those coworkers about his patients. You'll hear the voices of the three actors I just mentioned, Jason Siegel, Harrison Ford, and Jessica Williams. Let's listen. You guys ever get so mad at your patients that
1: all of a sudden you just
2: well, shake them.
1: Oh, well, we don't shake them.
2: No, I know. I know. I, I, I'm rooting for him. I am. I'm like, come on, you fucked up person. You can change. And then they just never do. Compassion fatigue, we all hit those walls. Yeah. You ask questions, you listen, you stay non-judgmental, and you don't make that face. Sorry.
1: It's just... Look, we know what they should
2: do. You know why? Because it's pretty fucking simple. I get sad when I do this thing. Maybe don't do
0: that fucking thing. We know the answer.
2: Don't you ever want to just make them do it? Great idea. We just rob them of their autonomy, any chance they have to help themselves, right? And we become what? Psychological vigilantes?
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm like sensing the sarcasm, but that sounds kind of badass.
2: (laughs) Julia, just don't do that fucking thing. This show shares a lot of DNA with Ted Lasso, uh, creators in common. Uh, That show hit a very precise note at exactly the right moment. What about uh, what about this one?
1: Yeah, I mean, this show has some amazing DNA, right? The creators are Jason Siegel, Brett Goldstein and Bill Lawrence, uh, Brett Goldstein and Bill Lawrence, obviously working together on Ted Lasso, Bill Lawrence, known to us from Scrubs, Cougartown. I mean, this is a group of people who knows how to make entertaining television, which is part of why I was so struck by how much I detested the first couple episodes. Like, I just felt like it was a a show pantomiming being a real TV show, but the writing felt really flabby, Um, really good performances from a lot of the actors in it. But I thought I I did not feel moved by Jason Siegel's performance. However, I will say I stuck with it through several episodes and it does seem like it kind of shakes off some pilot yips as it goes on. And I think begins to get its footing and you begin to, um, kind of get a sense of who these characters are and sort of enjoy spending time with them. But the performances by everyone but Siegel, I think, are great. It's so fun to see Harrison Ford in essentially like a sitcom or a dramedy. Um, welcome back, Harrison Ford. Love that he's not like grimacing with a fireball behind him, at least yet in the episodes I saw. Um, just really, really good performances all around. Um, and yet, even by the time I began to warm to this show, I really... I would like Dana to uh, give a disquisition on Jason Siegel, because I know you're a big Jason Siegel fan and I thought of myself as a big Jason Siegel fan coming into this and I think I'm a fan of lots of aspects of him but I'm not sure acting out grief is what I think he is best at doing. What did you make of him in the show?
3: I mean, I like the show so much better than either of you did and uh, I've I've seen all of it that's available to see to critics right now, which is nine episodes out of the 10. I've seen almost the whole thing. And it definitely is the case that as as with a lot of, especially I think sitcom type shows, it takes a few episodes to find its stride. And I'm not going to say that this show makes complete sense. Its premise, like the premise of Ted Lasso, I might add, is utterly absurd, just as it makes no sense that a Coach who doesn't understand soccer would be imported to coach a soccer team. So it doesn't make any sense that a therapist who started doing things as dysfunctional, not to spoil anything, but, you know, making choices as poor as the ones Jason Siegel's character makes in this show would immediately be fired, right? I mean, this kind of workplace, this jibing workplace relationship that we heard in that clip that he has with his boss, Harrison Ford, and his coworker, played by Jessica Williams, it would very soon cease to exist because he would be fired from his job if he were to do any of these things like invite one of his patients to live in his pool house because that patient got in trouble with the law because of other bad choices that his character made yes it makes no sense and you have to suspend some disbelief to enter into that sitcom zone but i felt like this show had such the spirit of ted lasso in a way which i don't like that much as a show but i understand that what people like about it including you steve is that it has this kind of um this twisted sweetness to it, you know, that without denying the darker side of life and of its character's inner lives, it finds their basic humanity and, and warmth and that all of the relationships in it ultimately are are ones of real affection, that real bonds are formed among all these co-workers and friends who meet in this unlikely way. And that's exactly how Shrinking felt to me. And as you go through it, if you watch the whole season, it's almost like a... Um, a chamber music piece that keeps having different arrangements, you know, like characters who aren't friends at the beginning of the ten episodes become friends by the end, and other relationships shift, and there's whole shows that are just about, for example, the Harrison Ford character's relationship with Jason Siegel's daughter, because he's this sort of, you know, um, almost grandfatherly figure who meets with her once in a while to talk about her loss of her mom. And, uh, and that relationship becomes really sweet. By the end of the 10 episodes, all I can say is I really, really wanted it to be renewed because the little odd, dysfunctional, affectionate, cranky world that it created was just a world that I wanted to stay in.
2: Oh, that was interesting. So yes, Dana, I sort of signaled to you before we started recording that I had issues with the show. Here's what I really loved about it. I actually thought Jason Segel was good. He's like a big, shambling, lovable, guy guy, um, and you know, I, a certain kind of not-so-guy guy loves hanging out with them, uh, or people like him, and um, he just scratched that itch, you know, f- for this emo boy. I i have enjoy, always enjoyed hanging out with Jason Siegel when he's on a screen, uh, and, and I continue to do so here. I, You know, Ted Lasso dropped, it was just drop pin right into the precise moment that people might have been open to a show whose thematic subtext over and over again was human beings are basically forgiving creatures, which of course they aren't. I think you can get away with that in a sort of sports genre piece meets fish out of water starring Jason Sudeikis (laughs) if it lands at a specific month during a global pandemic. Um, I'm not sure now, and I'm not sure with therapy is its background. It quite works, and There's some disbeliefs just won't get suspended, right? And every, it wasn't just that Jason Siegel is a seriously unboundaried therapist who would be de licensed in the first two seconds after he'd done, you know, his first sort of unorthodox you know, pop in into a person's life or, or, you know, he does a variety of things that no therapist would do. Um, but it was, it started to seem as though every single person on the show had a serious boundary issue issue, you know, um, I thought Jessica Williams marvelous as the young therapist in his office. She's incredibly funny. Every line is delivered with a little English on it. You know, it just has this little spin to it. Uh, I don't think that's overdone. I think it's beautifully played. She's terrific in this show. Um, and yet she in episode two demonstrates a massive boundary issue that no adult human being, much less trained therapist would ever, um, transgress in exactly the way she does in that episode. That's when I began to think, oh, this is fucking absurd. Um, and it, you wouldn't think a show like this could be irresponsible, but I, I want to but it felt like it. I want to say one other thing. Here was the note I made right after I made that note. I wrote down, then the fucking thing made me cry. You <laughs> Apple TV plus, <laughs> Apple TV plus, if that is your real name.
1: I I want to go back to your last point, though, Steve, because it's so interesting what you say about kind of the lack of moral seriousness of the way that the show sets out the premise. And I can only assume that in the same way that Ted Lasso reckons on some level with Ted Lasso's issues over the seasons, which it does, um, that this show you know, isn't setting up the premise of Jason Siegel wildly violates boundaries to be like, good work guys. (laughs) Like if only everyone would do this, things would be fine. Like it does not present what he's doing as great. But I actually felt like I I really enjoyed Ted Lasso like late. I think I was on leave when you guys talked about it or I I forget, but I missed the episode where we talked about it. So I caught up on it late and really, really loved it like everybody. And then in season two, I was like, wait, this show is so weird It's a simulacrum of an excellent show, great characters, funny writing, but like the moral compass has just gone out of the writer's room completely and they have characters doing totally insane and immoral things. And it's like there was no one in the room being like, "Uh, it would be totally inappropriate (laughs) for character X to have a relationship with like young employee Y and we are meant to be cheering about it. And in fact, it's like disgusting and horrifying and all of the emotional beats of the show are corrupted by the The like lack of adult judgment in your writer's room, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, i d- I doubt that Dana would come away from nine episodes loving the show if it didn't um ring a clear gong of moral beauty by the end of it. But uh, i I didn't feel trusting. I felt like the show wanted me to have indulgent fondness for. Siegel's behavior in a way that I didn't. And I'm, I'm, I just want to come back around to him as a performer, because I have always responded before to his shambling goofiness. I I just sort of felt like he was outclassed by the other actors here, and that he's a great writer. And, a and, you know, he, he's done all kinds of amazing things. And I've certainly enjoyed him as a hangout guy. I watched a lot of How I Met Your Mother really enjoyed him on that show. A lot is asked of him here for him to be grieving, manipulative, distant with his daughter, you know, have all these complicated relationships. And I sort of felt like he was playing pantomime kind of like there's a scene where he's out of shape and he's hiking up a hill with an in-shape person and he's like grunting and heaving and practically bare. crawling. Like it was not a believable. It was so oversized, his version of middle-aged out of shapeness, like if you're that out of shape, you sort of don't do the hike or you do it kind of differently. or you pop. Like, I just, I didn't buy it. There's a scene where he is crying on a bike because he's trying to experience grief listening to Phoebe Bridgers. And I was like, that's not, I don't, you're like doing a meme of, of grief or something. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't, it, right. it, the, the broadness that has sometimes made me really laugh really felt out of sync with the role and i'm curious dana whether for your response to that as someone who's both a fan of his and who's seen him settle into the role over the episodes what am i missing there
3: i mean for one thing he's doing something different than he's ever done right he always plays somebody who's who's sweet and lovable and while his his character in this show has those qualities underneath (laughs) he certainly starts off the season in this i mean that's sort of the premise of the first episode right like he is being a horrible dad a horrible neighbor you know he's doing cocaine with hookers in his swimming pool in the middle of the night while his teenage daughter is trying to sleep in the house i mean he's pushing his unlikability further than he's ever pushed it so it it is unusual to see him in that role. I mean, of those two scenes you just mentioned, I guess I see what you mean about him overacting in that hike scene. But I was laughing like hell at the Phoebe Bridgers moment. <laughs> and I think that's something that this show does really well, which is combine a serious story about grief with a lot of somewhat slapsticky comedy and and make that fly. The Harrison Ford character also has, and I won't reveal what it is, but he, he also has a... a very difficult thing that he's struggling with in his personal life which he's constantly making dark jokes about and yeah i mean i have to agree with you that probably harrison Ford is is the is the mvp of the show more than jason siegel is but given that Siegel is also one of the co-creators and that I'm just interested to see where he's pushing his career, I kind of like that he co-wrote a role and a, and a show for himself that is not the typical, you know, forgetting Sarah Marshall movie I love, but, you know, the the adorable and victimized Jason Siegel.
2: Okay, well, we're kind of sort of split on this. I'm going to go back in. I flicked it off after a boundary got broken in episode three. I was giving it yet a third strike and anyway um it's shrinking it's on apple tv plus starring jason siegel check it out let us know what you thought all right moving on
3: apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on all your favorite products at apple 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming and his facility shines with Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces. Plus 24 seven customer support. His venue never misses a beat. Call quitgranger.com or just stop by Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, what do you have?
3: Stephen, our only item of business this week is to tell you about the Slate Plus segment that's coming at the end of the show. This week, we're going to be talking about the closing of Noma, a legendary restaurant in Copenhagen, Denmark that for several years in a row, was named the best restaurant in the world, I think regularly appears on lists of the best restaurants in the world, it was also an extremely influential one. It opened 20 years ago and it's going to be closing this year and the chef, Rene Redzepi, legendary chef, is going to start a new kind of enterprise. We are talking about that in part as a way of talking about restaurant culture and fine dining and where astronomically expensive fine dining is going in the post-pandemic era, but also because, and this is, I guess, a bit of a spoiler, Steve has a personal experience Experience with the restaurant NOMA. As longtime listeners know, he's a big Scandinavian fan and Scandinavia traveler. And uh, he has actually had uh, years ago a personal experience at the Noma restaurant. So we'll discuss that in the context of our Slate Plus segment. If you belong to Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of our show. If you are not, you can always join up by going to Slate.com/slash culture plus. There you will sign up to get ad-free podcasts, bonus content like the segment I just described. And, of course, unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. You'll never hit a paywall when you belong to Slate Plus, and you will also be supporting us, our work, and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships matter a lot for our magazine, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next?
2: All right, well Triangle of Sadness is a sprawling social commentary from writer director Ruben Ostlin. He of uh, Force Majeure and The Square, which uh, also won the Palme d'Or before this one. The story here follows a young and very very beautiful couple. They're both models whose relationship is already seething with resentment about money when thanks to her status as an influencer they get comped for a luxury cruise. Uh, It's on a boat that caters to the super, super duper rich. What follows is a pretty wild social satire. It's very hard to summarize without spoiling. I'll say only that it wildly combines uh, John Locke, Lena Wertmuller, and Gilligan's Island, all in one crazy blend. It also stars Charles B. Dean, Harris Dickinson, and in a really, truly a breakout performance, Dolly de Leon is the ship's head toilet cleaner. In the clip we're about to hear, the captain of the yacht, who's played by Woody Harrelson, gets progressively drunker with one of his guests, a wealthy Russian sort of oligarch type played by Zlatko Budak. The two of them start exchanging quotes about communism and capitalism in a sort of dueling banjos of political zingers. Uh, let's take a listen. Okay. Classic. Uh. The most powerful single force in the world today is man's eternal desire to be free and independent. Kennedy. Okay. Uh. Freedom in capitalist society always remains about the same as it was in ancient Greece. Freedom for slave owners. I know. Vladimir Lenin. School. Ah. <laughs> Russian capitalist and an American communist. Oh. On a $250 million luxury yacht. On a $250 million luxury yacht. All right. Well, Dana, uh, let me start with you. Uh, Ostland is a very distinctive auteur. Uh, This movie, as I understand, really fits in with the preoccupations and style that's made him famous. What did you make of this?
3: I mean, Ostland. Okay, so... His breakthrough film, I guess at least outside of Scandinavia, was Force Majeure from a couple of years ago. I can't remember if we all saw Force Majeure together or not. The one about the the skiing trip and the avalanche and a family living through that experience. No? Does that ring a bell?
2: It rings a bell. I never saw it.
3: Uh, That, I thought, was an excellent movie. It, It inhabited this strange zone that both of his movies since have as well that's in between blistering social satire and sort of human drama insofar as the characters are human, which with each movie since then, I think has become less. So the reason I mention you know, a movie that he made um, two movies ago is because since then he made The Square, which as you mentioned, won the Palme d'Or, and then this, Triangle of Sadness, which also won the Khan Palme d'Or top award. And I feel like with each of his movies, his characters are becoming less characters and more mouthpieces for ideas, like you just heard in that scene between Woody Harrelson and Zlatko Burek arguing on the ship. And that his his ideas are just getting more and more ham-handed, and I don't know, I thought this was a very bad movie, and and that The Square, the movie that came in between, which is a satire of the art world, not unlike this, but, you know, sort of satirizing the, the world of um, art traders and artists and dealers. I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I I really can't stand when a movie's ideas are this big and anvil-like (laughs) and being slammed into your head. I also just felt like the shape of this story. I, I I realize that it's a three-act structure right there's this part before the couple gets on the ship where they're kind of arguing about money and we see something about their modeling life then there's a section on the ship and then there's you know what everyone's been comparing to Gilligan's Island Um, not to spoil anything but uh, things happen such that some of the characters are stranded on a desert island and that's the last act of the movie Um, I just didn't feel like those three parts of the story hung together in any way I, I don't know. I just, I, there's something about the attitude of Ruben Auslan toward his audience. And I think A.O. Scott in the Times really gets at this when he talks about the sadomasochism of his filmmaking. This just all kind of about how bad he can make you feel and how gross he can be. And, you know, there's this much talked about scene that's all about vomiting because there's a wave of seasickness and food poisoning on the ship. And of course, right, the social satire is evident that even these very fancy people on a $250 million luxury yacht are subject to the same biological processes as the rest of us which is sort of how we all end up at the island as well and it's just I get it why is it two hours and 20 minutes long why I, I, no more for me I'm done with Ruben Osland unless he turns the ship around
2: what do you think Julia don't be a crapulent hypocrite um, what did you make of the, this anvil or did you find it more subtly wrought than Dana
1: I enjoyed it so much <laughs> <laughs> I love it oh I love it I I was thinking I was – I basically I had whiplash with all of our topics this week because I really thought shrinking like barely worked and then I read all these raves and then I thoroughly enjoyed Triangle of Sadness and then read all these like – pans in the spirit of Dana's comments just now, which is that the political ideas are facile and broad and stupid and the it's so obvious what he's trying to say and he seems so smug and self-satisfied in the obviousness of what he's trying to say. And it, it made me wonder what I had enjoyed about the film. And I think just because you have facile political ideas doesn't mean it isn't fun to watch a bunch of people being skewered for their ridiculosity and for different vectors of ridiculosity. And I really found that actually contrary to what you said about everybody being a a big anvil of a political idea, Dana, I thought that the portraits of kind of human dynamics of exploitation and manipulation were wrought with more subtlety. And yes, there's kind of the overlayer of goofy political ideas, but that scene of those two exchanging giant political ideas... The point of that scene isn't wow these political ideas are interesting or wow mm-hmm. the Marxist yeah. political ideas are the good ones. Like both of those men are idiotic buffoons whose use of political ideas is fatuous and stupid. Like we're not supposed to think like wow one of those guys sure has it right and these rich sickos are all you know <sighs> vomiting everywhere. It's they're all everybody from the richest person on the boat you know, down to the the um, poorest person we spend time with has the capacity for human manipulation and exploitation that's part of their place in the social hierarchy mm. and also separate from it. And I, you know, I wouldn't make the case that this film has the most surprising ideas or the most subtle uh, exploration of humanity under capitalism or, or whatever one might want to be able to say about it, but... I just found the performances really strong and subtle, and the writing of the dyna- the interpersonal dynamics, lively, interesting, surprising, and kind of fun and funny to be around. And so it was mm-hmm. sort of having yeah. a little bit of a romp near these interesting ideas. And yeah, I didn't feel anviled. I felt I felt uh, entertained.
2: Uh, okay, I'm chomping at the bit here, so I have to dive in. I. I loved the first third to half of this movie. In fact, that was almost precisely the moment it started to lose me. It 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 the, you know, improbably the so beginning with with um Yaya, the beautiful young model and her boyfriend. Um you know, she's an amazing he, they're both amazing characters because improbably Osland has taken these two like annoyingly good-looking people and turned them into completely believable human beings, right? With an actual dilemma, which is that they can only monetize their looks so much, right? They're at a level where they have a career. Hers is more successful than his. Like there's a precision about what their economic position is in society vis-a-vis this astounding, you know, accident of birth, which is their looks, and how she realizes that the only real way to cash it in for her because she's a, a very, very successful but model, but not a supermodel. What she is as an influencer is via her influencing to meet a super rich guy. And she's very cynical and very blunt about that. But in a way, and it's partially the performance of this really astonishing actress, Charlie Dean, who I only found out when I googled her as I was watching it because I'd never seen her before, is sadly deceased. She died last August uh, from um, complications from sepsis. But Unfortunately, that's another story. But in this movie, she's so incredibly alive as this character that even as she's saying these somewhat despicable things, you still kind of love her and you understand her predicament. And I thought, and and I thought. The, sat- the funny thing is the initial satire of the fashion industry is incredibly precise, fly-on-the-wall satire making of the highest level. I had no idea what this movie was about. I hadn't seen his other movies. I was totally captivated and thought I was in for that movie about the two of them in this world. But then, you know, we moved to the yacht, and the yacht kind of worked for me. And I liked how weird Woody Harrelson is, this captain who doesn't want to captain the ship anymore and is sort of captain abscondus. You know, he just doesn't refuses basically to 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 pilot it anymore or interact with the guests. And um it's literally when the boat begins to rock that he goes crazy. He goes into this kind of lurid fever dream in which the satire suddenly flattens, and then it becomes really problematic. Julia, I was surprised that you noted this as a subtlety or strength of the movie. There is a problem with the satire that gets this pitiless, which is, are you in a state, the movie almost argues that humans are so fallen by nature, that in a state of nature, all they're going to do is recreate the tendency to hierarchy and exploitation at which point there's a kind of smug self-regarding nihilism that's the only like a smug inertia that's the only takeaway from the movie like we can organize society however we want human nature is the transcendent thing and at the end of the day it's eat or be eaten it's like it's that Dana is where it really lost me. It's that utter cynicism, which is a, a form of um it's exactly the decadence that this movie thinks that it's satirizing,
3: yeah. well, I mean, I guess I guess I felt that sour nihilism from the very beginning. You know, so to me, I was just I was a solid no on this movie all the way through and probably would not have finished the movie if we were not talking about it on the show
1: as an intellectual argument, I totally get and respond to the idea that the plot of what happens in the third act feels nihilistic. It is saved for me by the incredible performance of Dolly de Leon as Abigail, who yes. is, you know, on the ship. She um, has one social position and on the deserted island, she achieves a new one. And I don't want to say more than that for folks who want to see this movie, which I would encourage you to see because it's very yeah, funny and fun. <laughs> um, but her performance... In that role, I mean, again, this is this is the unanvilness of the movie to me. Like the the kind of schematic of how the power dynamics shift on the island is kind of uh, eye rolling, obvious, and boring. I mean, all half of those quotes that they say to each other are quotes that were like in my quote book at camp in seventh grade. Like they're <laughs> they're the the level of the level of sophistication <laughs> of the political thought is like. I'm a bookish seventh grader who like wants to think I have political thoughts, you know. <laughs> Probably not the not the Maggie Thatcher ones, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but the portrait of human behavior within these social structures, I think, is really acute. And these performances of sort of uh, how their relationships evolve, I found really believable and kind of charming and. Um, again, I get I get that as described, this movie sounds incredibly like the bore at the party that you don't want to sit next to. But I actually found like, the experience of watching this movie, kind of like standing yourself in the corner of the party with a really good people watcher, and kind of observing the dynamics. And I enjoyed that a lot.
3: You know, Julia, you're not alone at all. When you started off saying, you know, the the Siegel Show's gotten all these great reviews, and this has gotten all these terrible reviews. Actually, people are critics have been very mixed on this from the beginning. It's one of those kind of movies that won the con prize, but also started to be mocked and walked out on <laughs> from from its earliest showings at con. So, I think I agree with you that people should see it if they're curious about it. I mean, I I may have found it an utterly unpleasant and un fulfilling experience that I got nothing out of but lots and lots of people have found it both funny and thought-provoking including tons of smart movie critics so I I would say in spite of my own sour nihilism about it that it's it's worth worth people watching if they're curious
2: I just feel the need to echo one thing Dolly de Leon's performance is mind-blowing redeems the last third of the movie totally as uh, Latko Burak as the Russian oligarch is fabulous I I thought there were multiple really really Uh, special performances in this movie. All right, it's uh, Triangle of Sadness. It is up for Best Picture. It's easy enough to see. It's on Amazon Prime, a bunch of other a la carte places. Six bucks, try it out. There's a lot to say. We'd love to hear what you think. All right, moving on.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
2: All right. Well, the cut ran a, I guess it's a package, whatever it's called. Um, it's do you know how to behave? Are you sure? How to text, tip, ghost, host, and generally exist in polite society today? There are just there are what a hundred plus of these. Some of them are incredibly funny. And on point, some of them are head-scratchers. Of course, everyone on social media is disagreeing about which falls into which category. Um, but, you know, for example, like, don't call a famous person that you happen to know or pretend to know by a nickname. He's not Bobby De Niro. Even if he's Bobby De Niro to you, call him Robert. You know, to exit a boring conversation at a party, just try something other than I'm going to the bathroom or get another drink. Um grace period for lateness is 10 minutes inflexibly, uh, on and on and on. I mean, there are all kinds of examples. Uh, Dana, let's start with you. You're on social media. I hear this made quite a splash.
3: Yeah, I had read this before we ever decided to talk about it just because everybody was gasping and giggling about it the day it came out. It was the cover story in New York Magazine, and they promoted it pretty effectively because it really did get people talking about their etiquette list. I think that for me, the the things that were the biggest head-scratchers or and it, on occasion somewhat offensive suggestions um, had to do with the editorial practice behind this list. And that's what I want Julia to talk about when, when it's her turn to speak about this, is just as an editor, as somebody who has spent decades now deciding how to shape magazine pieces. I mean, this is obviously authored by multiple authors. Um, a few of the entries are signed specifically by which contributor wrote it, but most of them aren't. And I feel like the, the main shocker about this list is an editorial shocker. Like there is no consistency of of tone or purpose throughout this entire thing. I mean, the very first entry in this entire, I think it's 140 entry piece about, you know, ways to behave in the modern world is you don't have to read everyone's book, which to me just really lays the cards on the table about who this is for and who it's by in a way that's that's somewhat <laughs> that's condemnatory of the true, whole yeah. enterprise right like it I am even in the demographic that this is addressed to like people in New York who work in media and I find it too provincial and narrow like everyone's book i mean do we really all know that many people who are publishing books that we have multiple books that we have to read That might be a question if there were, you know, a specific media people's etiquette sort of list. But the idea that a general guide to behavior opens with that proviso, you don't have to read everybody's book to me, just narrows the audience for it so much that I already don't respect it going in. So that's an editorial choice. Like, even if you're going to have that in there, why is it the very first one? I mean, I can point to other odd things, but they they are more in the head-scratcher zone. Like, um, one of the, I believe it was tip number 71, is something about if somebody has bowls of cigarettes set out at their party, that doesn't mean that you can smoke inside. You should still go out on the balcony or out of the building. No, no, smoke. no.
1: It's the opposite. Is that it's what it opposite? is? Opposite. Oh, oh. If there's yeah, bowls of if, cigarettes if you at your party. Put, if you put bowls of cigarettes out, you must let people smoke inside.
3: To me, that's just from the beginning is a non-starter because it's just like bowls of cigarettes at a party. I've never seen that <laughs> in my entire life, including at parties I went to back in the day where more people smoked than they do now, you know, what in the 80s or something like that. That just seemed like such a—I guess that there's maybe some hipsters in the world somewhere that are putting bowls of cigarette out at their party, but— that was just, that was certainly one of the ones that was so specific that it made no sense. And then, all right, as long as you're asking for specifics, okay, here's one that a lot of people on my Twitter feed were kind of offended by, and I can see why. And that I read over many times thinking, did I really understand that? Which was something about who picks up the check on a date. And the last sentence, which I think was meant as an ironic joke, was, but the bottom line is whoever is penetrating pays the check. <laughs> and it was sort of like, Okay, we've spent 30 years with Dan Savage and other, you know, sex columnists and activists telling us that sex is not all about penetration. But I guess dinner checks come down to that, which really makes no sense, because if you were on a date where you had not yet had sex with the person, how would you know what your sexual relationship might turn out to be later on? So that was just one of the ones where it seemed like. I guess we're supposed to be laughing knowingly at that, although I don't find it funny even as somebody who knows more about dating culture, I guess. But if I were a young person trying to figure out dating culture, I, I, I think that tip is the opposite of helpful. I think it's it's kind of vicious and, and mean and reductive. So, But that's not the, the general tone of the list. And there's also some really straightforward, sincere kind of tips. I don't know. I mean, I I happened to pick out three things that stuck out for me because they were weird, but I don't know if you guys experienced the same thing. It's just the lack of of tonal control of this entire enterprise just had me feeling like it was below the level of what New York Magazine should be publishing. Without naming names, I will say that this seemed like it belonged on a lesser internet site. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have to take that after hours, exactly which (laughs) lesser internet site you think (laughs) are you thinking
1: about. Um, I... It's so interesting. I actually feel like the signaling of that first entry, you don't have to read your friend's books. Um, You know, New York is like an aspirational – I mean, it's it's sort of an omnipresent media brand, but it's also like about a certain kind of idea of a life in New York. And I think starting with that one, I bet, was a very intentional choice of signaling that this is rules of etiquette for – a particular possibly imagined set of people putting out bowls of cigarettes at parties, but but kind of an idea of a New York person, um, which, you know, is the, is the magazine's right to do, of course. I think the point about tonal wobbliness, though, is interesting because because that tone is very arch. Like, we're imagining a set of rules for a kind of, like, hyper-literate, sort of elbow-rubby... I mean, there's also... Uh, several people have amusingly skewered the fact that numerous rules are about like what to do when a famous person is among you, which is also just like not a (laughs) not not like a common problem. But it is kind of a New York problem. You do end up sometimes with a notable person at your table or your party or something like the the kind of ludicrous um, elevation of the specificity uh, seemed like part of the point. But then there was this separate point in the intro, which is during the pandemic, we all forgot how to relate to one another. And so we're going to tell you how to do it. And that's like a more sincere kind of like Ted lasso project of like, how can humans connect in this broken, fucked up world? And I do think there are moments where the kind of gloopiness and the archness Uh, were kind of oil and water in this project. And you could kind of shake it up and get a bunch of gloop or you could get a bunch of arch. And maybe that's part of why it had such a surprisingly robust response. Like, I don't know, this didn't feel like a cover story to me. This felt like a story you put on the cover when the cover story doesn't work out, kind of. And then I was surprised that the internet response to it was so big like I guess people were dying for a set of rules of behavior mm-hmm. to both appreciate and argue with so I'm as interested in the like fact that the internet went nuts about this as I am in the list itself which seemed full of yeah, I don't know it seemed like a pleasant mildly provocative 10-minute read to me
2: yeah I mean I kind of feel like you know the idea of Miss Manners or Emily post is like that's from an, that's a Victorian anachronism from another century but ironically I think as as the rules for public comportment get looser, or might more diverse, or more ambiguously defined. People's capacity for private judgments and sort of post mortems, where you deconstruct how fucking annoying someone's behavior was, or you know how what their faux pas were like, intensifies. So I do think we live in this. What this revealed to me in part because of its, I agree, Dana, editorial weakness, which is that it's just a chorus of, you know, this kind of discordant chorus of too many voices. Um, you know, each voicing at moments... I mean, clearly when you kind of crowd, you know, when you hive it like that in an editorial room, not only are you going to get this tiny, unrepresented slice of the city voicing its own, you know, hobby horses and crotchets, but also, you know, you... you um, the person with the most distinctive opinion is probably going to get that say on that thing or the most definite opinion or 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 sort of vociferously held or interestingly held one. So you end up with all of these, like this panoply of like highly, to my mind, some of them just highly idiosyncratic. Some of them are just outright asinine. I mean, if you show up at a dinner party and you have a, like a serious food allergy, you're supposed to just not eat the food and not say anything. Um, I thought the most interesting Entry also had the most revealing sentence in the whole thing. They asked a, mich- a server from a Michelin-starred restaurant in the city to address restaurant behavior. And this person said, people don't know how to behave, but no one's ever known how to behave. I mean, I would say that people know less now than they ever did. Nonetheless, that was very, I thought that was jumped out to me. People don't know how to behave. And and actually, every child development expert has shown that what really fucks kids up is ambivalence uh the half stated the shifting standard um you know ambiguity is an incredibly anxiety inducing affect um you know and the lack of obvious public authority is what makes this both it, it, it services that lack of public authority that's made people anxious at the same time it just it just inflames it, right? You're like, holy shit, I do everything wrong. And who are these fucking assholes? And then I'm privately judging these private judges who've publicly aired their judgments. It's just strikes me <laughs> as an insanely unhealthy exercise.
1: I uh, love that Steve. I mean, I guess maybe that's part of what the nerve is though. Like I do think people are sort of confused by the ambiguity around behavior and so, maybe part of the electricity of the response to this is that it both is attempting to solve a real need like it is very clarifying, like you're allowed to be ten minutes late, but anymore is rude. love that i in my mind, I think I would have put it at six, so okay, that we'll call it ten um on the other hand, the fact that this list itself can't you know it's it's the same as like moving from prime time t v three options to you know, let a thousand streaming services bloom. Like, is this a set of rules for humans, for the Ted Lasso watchers among us who just want to be kind and nourishing? Or is this a set of rules for people who, you know, for like the 800 people who go to a very specific subset of book parties in New York City? Like, it itself can't decide, which is a demonstration of the problem of like, what even are the rules? Um, so maybe it's maybe it's that we're all floating in ambiguity, and that is why everyone seized upon this this list. This list was the door that they're clinging to after the Titanic, and we we're <laughs> uh, you know g- grabbing onto it and pulling it under and making it useless as we fight with it.
3: I mean, Julia, I wish I could I could go with that reading of it. I would be more forgiving of this list if I felt like. It actually did feel like a door, a door being extended to the sinking Leo that we all feel like right now in these <laughs> this, these pandemic mid post pandemic days, but. Once again, I just feel like I I felt a sloppiness behind this whole endeavor that just really irritated me. And there were pieces of advice in there that are actually the opposite of what I would like. So I will say this to to listeners and to you, too. If any of you are at my place staying overnight, as Steve once did, I can't remember why, Steve, but you once crashed here. Do not do as this list says and strip the bed even if the host says you don't have to. That doesn't make any sense. And in my particular case, the place where guests sleep is also the laundry room. It's also my office where I'm recording this show right now. And maybe I don't feel like having a big pile of dirty sheets on the floor because the guest decided that a New York magazine etiquette list said they should do that. Maybe instead you should listen to what your host says and do what they like. That just seemed like, again, a moment of a person taking some anecdote from their own personal life where they were mad that their guest didn't strip the bed and imposing it on us all. So I won't be having that. In which case, just tell your guest to strip the bed.
1: (laughs) Dana,
2: I can absolutely reassure you I did not strip the bed, even if you asked me to. (laughs) <laughs> those, those sheets are just where I left them.
1: Rest assured, Steve was rude in the classic way, not rude from trying to follow this dumb advice about how not to be rude.
0: Uh,
2: I'll let that be the final word. All right. It's the pieces in New York Magazine. I found it on the Cut, the website. Uh, we'll link to it. It's titled "Do you know how to behave? Are you sure?" Question mark. Question mark. Oh, be anxious. All right, let's uh, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have?
3: Steven, my endorsement is related to our segment on Shrinking, the new show co-created by and starring Jason Segel. So Julia was asking me about my longtime Jason Segel love. And it's true. I have great, great affection for him ever since Freaks and Geeks days, but not only because of his acting and not even only because of his co-creating and co-writing of many of the projects he's worked on, but because of his actual life as a writer, which I feel like in this little Segel sense that we're having right now with Shrinking coming out, including several profiles I've read of him, nobody is talking about his children's books and the fact that he wrote this series of, I guess you'd call them middle grade novels. They're not quite YA. They're for, I think, middle school age kids um, called Nightmares. It's by Jason Siegel, co-written with Kirsten Miller. And the first one is called Nightmares. Then there's Two sequels, Nightmare's the Sleepwalker Tonic and Nightmare's the Lost Lullaby. I think there's also a kind of guide to the monsters in this book, like a fourth sort of um, catalog style book in the same series. And my daughter has loved these books since she was about 10. She's now 16. She still sometimes listens to the audiobook read beautifully by Jason Siegel uh, when she's going to sleep or sort of wants some, some comfort listening. They're mildly scary, sort of very symbolic stories about actually a story that is not unrelated to the premise of Shrinking, about a boy who has lost his mother, and uh, and who's grieving his mother by having these horrible nightmares that he can't get out of, and so the story is a somewhat magical one where he manages to kind of enter the nightmare realm as a way of managing these monsters that haunt him in his sleep. They're very funny. They're full of really great, colorfully imagined um, creepy characters, some of whom turn out to be quite lovable, even though they are scary. And Jason Siegel's audiobooks of them are wonderful. He just reads them with such passion. His love for the kind of kid goofiness of this project reminds me of his his co-writing of the Muppet movie that he starred in, which I think had a wonderful spirit also. And uh, so yeah, if you love that Jason Siegel, the Jason Siegel of um, you know the the puppet play that he does within Forgetting Sarah Marshall or the Muppet movie, he has a great series of kids books. So um, introduce your any kid who I think is over about ten or eleven years old could could handle them, and I know they work super well as audiobooks because they're constantly playing in my house.
1: Mm,
2: great. All right, uh, Julia, what do you have?
1: I didn't know about those books at all. I'm excited to learn about those. Uh, although the plot sounds a little intense for my my older boys are very tender with high-stakes plots. But my daughter, now nearing two, um, is just like the classic final kid and is <laughs> regularly like sitting and watching Marvel movies with the boys. And the boys only be able, <laughs> started to be able to see Marvel movies like, you know, a year ago without weeping and wailing at them. <laughs> and I Meanwhile, well, whenever there's an explosion, my daughter is like boom. <laughs> she loves it. So, anyway, maybe she'll read them. But uh all right. Well, I this week want to fly. I want to endorse something from a an OG foodie friend of the program, former producer of the program, Danny Pash, the great Dan Pashman, now host and producer of the Sporkful. Podcast and a pasta tycoon. We had him on a year and a half ago to talk about his series on the Sporkful Mission Impossible about his quest to invent a delicious new pasta shape. But um, the man himself has now partnered with Spolini, the company that made Cascatelli his pasta shape, with him uh, to produce two new pasta shapes. Uh, They are not invented by him; they are merely kind of rare shapes that he has excavated in his pasta learnings and wants to be more widely available. One, which he has named Quattrotini is kind of like a penne with a uh, little ridgy bumps on it. Um, ridgy tubes attached to it. And the other called a Vesuvio is kind of a pasta, pasta cyclone. It would be good Dana to pair with a viewing of Twister. Um, so <laughs> you can purchase Quattrotini and Vesuvio, Vesuvie. Uh, along with Cascatelli at the Svelini website. I think he's currently selling them in like gigantic packages of six. We have tried both and really enjoyed particularly the Tini, although both are good. Um, anyway, uh, the series is really, really good. Mission Impossible has kind of continued with a couple updates every six months about, you know, the process of selling them. And, you know, I think they just got into Walmart and they made a, a gluten-free version with Bonza. And uh, the latest installment is about locating these new shapes, but they're delicious. And Dan Danny Pash's show is really good. And I will also say it's great for kids. Like you know, children love to eat pasta. My children exclusively love to eat pasta. It sometimes feels, um, and they have really enjoyed this podcast and enjoyed trying all these pasta shapes. Although they now have developed a feeling that they have different taste in pasta than Dan but they still enjoy learning from him about pasta. So Quattratini from Svelini and the Sporkful's ongoing Mission Impossible series are my endorsements today.
2: Oh, man. I mean, what friend of the program beats Stan Pashman for sauceability, forkability, and tooth sinkability? That guy. Nobody. Nobody, Nobody can. All right. Well, I'm endorsing um, a pleasant surprise, which is I very much enjoyed the um danish tv show the bridge breakout scandi crime procedural thriller uh it introduced much of my world to the wonderful actor kim bodnia who plays one of the two detectives on it um who uh, then became much more well known uh, to american audiences at least because he's uh the assassin's handler in killing eve just a wonderful screen presence if he's on screen you're enjoying watching your screen he uh for a variety of reasons he disappears after the second season sort of mostly written or entirely written out of the show to be replaced by a new actor and i thought what's that show without that guy but then kind of bored and casting about for a new you know series to get uh lost in decided to try season three of the bridge Turns out it's kind of great. And and what that show does really well, I mean, I think some of the genre elements stretch my credulity a little hard, but um, but I don't care. I like I like the look and feel of it and I I just really enjoy it. But nonetheless, one of the things that I find most amazing about a lot of Scandi, actually the killing was like this too, was this I think kind of really good faith attempt to show like a social large social tapestry and how each part of it is affected by this central crime and I'm just totally gripped by it. I was like more great genre TV. Didn't know even was there to enjoy to this degree. Season three of the bridge really dug it for bridge fans who stuck with the franchise. Even after Bodnia left, I'd love to hear from you. and, And if you like it as much as I do. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page that's slate.com/ culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Jessica Baldorama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.